All right, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word today? Our passage is Luke 14, verses 1 through 35, or all of chapter 14. All right, Luke chapter 14. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited, when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go and see it. I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done. And still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in to that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple." Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who hears, has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord.
I'm curious, what's your first reaction when you get invited to something? Someone invites you, you get an invitation in the mail, one of those email evite things, whatever it is. What's your first reaction? Now, I didn't get invited to many parties as a kid. I don't know if you knew this. I wasn't uh, super popular, if you will, wasn't kind of cool. Matt can attest to that. Um, He knew me. Uh, So typically, when I was invited to something, it was a quick decision. I got invited to something fantastic. Yes, I'm going to go, of course. Perhaps you're different, though. Maybe you have lots of things you're invited to. Maybe you're invited to things all the time. Perhaps you struggle with uh, something that I struggle with at times nowadays. You get invited to something, and it seems like it'd be a good thing. But as you get kind of closer to the event, you start to think, ah, man, you know, I've been doing so many things, and maybe I'd rather just stay home, watch a movie, sit on the couch for a little bit, just relax. I mean, this is just another thing to do, another night of the week to get myself out. Oh, man, I'd I'd have to change out of sweatpants even, take a shower maybe. Oh, man, do I really want to go do all that? You start to dread that thing that you're locked into, right? Even if the thing isn't necessarily a bad thing, even if you, and and typically this is the way it goes, I actually go to said thing and I go, man, I'm really glad I came to that. That was really a lot of fun. I really enjoyed myself. But there's this thing that happens in between as you're anticipating it where it's kind of like, oh, man, another thing. Another temptation we face is delaying our RSVPing, right? You get invited to a thing in a month or in two months and it's like, yeah, well, that's so far away. Who knows what's going to happen in between now and then? You start to think, well, what if something else comes up on that Saturday? And now I've told someone that I'm going to go to their thing, and then, but now I really want to go to that thing. Oh, man, then I'll miss out on the thing I really want to go to more because I've already RSVP'd for this. And so what do you do? You just kind of, you don't want to lock yourself into anything, you know. You run the opposite risk though, don't you? You run the risk of not locking yourself into something that you actually would have liked to be a part of. You end up missing out on the first thing. Well, maybe it matters who you're invited by and what you're invited to. There's some people's parties you just don't miss out on, right? There's some things that when a particular person invites you, you know the answer is yes, because they invited you to the thing. It's their thing. Jesus' kingdom is often described in terms of a banquet or in terms of a feast. And I think that's pretty cool, you know? I kind of like that idea. It's like, yeah, this is going to be a party. There's some food there. It's going to be fantastic. And it's the kind of party where if you understood what it was... If you understood really who was inviting you, who's hosting the party, who's throwing the bash, if you will, you'd rearrange your whole schedule to make sure you can be there. You can bank on this party being the party of the year, if you will, because you know the host is good for it. And yet Jesus' concern in the passage we have this morning is that these Pharisees, those who are there, and ultimately the crowds that are all around and following him, that they don't understand what he's inviting them to. They don't understand what they've been invited to, and they're going to miss it. Rather than giving up today for the better things of eternity, They're giving up the eternal banquet for lesser things today. How do we see that is the case? Well, Jesus gives some very practical illustrations, everyday illustrations that that by our behavior we can tell, by our behavior right now, right here on earth, It actually reveals something about our eternal perspective. It reveals something about what we think about that party that day that Jesus will host. So I think there are three 
types of responders to this invitation that Jesus has for us. Three types of responders that I want us to consider this morning. There are those who are kingdom attenders, those who receive the invitation and go, that, that, that will be there at the banquet. There are kingdom rejectors, and then there are kingdom quitters. So I want to look at these in turn as Jesus speaks to a number of different people in our text today. So the first, the first people that Jesus turns to are both those who are invited to a dinner at one of the Pharisees' house and the host himself. And so the setup is this. Jesus goes to a dinner party at the home of a Pharisee. He doesn't just go and eat with tax collectors and sinners. It turns out he also goes and eats with Pharisees. It turns out that he receives invitations wherever people are willing to hear the gospel of the good news of his kingdom. But also interesting is that Jesus seems willing to speak even the awkward truth no matter where he is. And we're going to see that in the text, aren't we? He's invited to, he's, he's the guy that ruins the night, what would have been the nice dinner party if that Jesus hadn't brought up that thing, right? And so here is Jesus at the dinner party. He comes, he, uh, and a man with dropsy comes in. Dropsy is, uh, as I understand it, a condition where the body swells as it fills with, with water, right? And so this man comes in, and, and I want you to understand something about this guy that has this very clear, very evident, visible, physical ailment. By all accounts, this guy should not have been at the dinner. He shouldn't have been there. The Pharisees would not have invited him there. And, it, and it's very odd that he would just happen to be at a Pharisee's house. You see, the, the Pharisees would have looked at this man, looked at his physical ailment, and they would have said, this man is not blessed by God like we are. He is on the outside. They would have said, he's on the outside of that banquet, the kingdom banquet. We Pharisees are on the inside, and there's a relationship here, illustrative relationship between the dinner party at the Pharisees and how it might compare or contrast to the banquet that Jesus is speaking about in the kingdom. And so this man is there, and he, he shouldn't be there. And we can assume, based on the phrase, watching him carefully, that they were watching him carefully in verse 1, that he was invited in simply to set Jesus up. That the Pharisees brought him there when they normally wouldn't have to set Jesus up and to see what he would do. So Jesus uses this, this dinner, this, this ordinary banquet at this Pharisee's house, and the man who is invited who shouldn't be there to illustrate a few things about who is invited to the kingdom banquet. And there are two illustrations in this first section. One, is, one as I said, was directed to the people invited, one to the host. And the points of these stories, though, I think are for everyone who is there. The kind of person, Jesus is going to say, that accepts the invitation to my banquet is someone with a humble heart and a generous life. It's people with humble hearts and generous lives. So he turns to those who were invited and he begins to speak to them. Now, now I don't know if you've ever been to a party or a dinner where at the tables they have the little placards and it has your name on it. You've got to find your name because that's where you're supposed to sit because it's kind of like predetermined seating arrangement. Anyone ever been at a party like that? Well, they didn't have placards at, at um, this dinner party or at dinner parties in the first century, right? They wanted to get a little piece of papyrus, you know, and just scribble on there. No, they didn't do that. But there was a seating arrangement. There was an understood seating arrangement based on social standing. Okay? The most distinguished people were those who sat closer to the end of the table where the host was, and those who were less distinguished sat on the other end. Now, we hear that today and we think, oh, how terrible. But I can assure you that in that day and time, it wasn't meant to be an embarrassing thing. It was, just a, it was just a point of fact. 
yeah, this person is more distinguished and this person is, is less not- notable, right? And it wouldn't have been an embarrassing thing to come in and sit on this end of the table, but what was embarrassing is if you presumed that you were more distinguished than the host presumed you were. And you came and you sat down on this end of the table close to the host, and someone comes in later who the host believes to be more distinguished than you, and the host goes, oh, actually, I want that person to sit closer to me. They need to sit on this end. And so then the host in front of everyone else says, "Uh, Cody, uh, you need to get up and you need to sit over there, you know. You're You're at the wrong lunch table in the cafeteria, if you will. That would have been embarrassing. And so Jesus is making this point uh, using an illustration that everyone would have been very familiar with. All of those guys would have been to a party at some point where someone had to get their seat changed. And they'd be like, oh, you don't want to be the guy. You don't want to be the guy that has to sit, you know, scoot down to the end of the bench, if you will. You don't want to be that guy. It's a far better honor, even an honor to be moved up. It's an honor for the host to come in and say, Cody, why are you sitting down there? No, no, no. You move up here. We'll kick this guy down. And so the Pharisees, they assume that they will be admitted into this kingdom that Jesus is talking about. And they assume that they'll be admitted in part because of their exalted and blessed position on earth in contrast with this social outcast man with dropsy, right? But by healing the man, by healing the man at this Pharisee's party, what Jesus is saying effectively to that man is move to the higher seat. What he does effectively at the Pharisee's party is man with dropsy who everyone knows shouldn't be here, who's a social outcast who everyone looks down on, I am moving, I, Jesus, am moving you up seats. You're healed now. You see, God is not inviting the exalted. He's exalting the invited. That's what he does. It is you being invited. It's you actually receiving that invitation, coming into Christ's kingdom. That is what exalts you. You're not invited because you're exalted. You're invited by the, exalt, by the invitation you're exalted. We receive the invitation in humility now so that we will be exalted then. And those who reject it are those who are proud now. And what Jesus says is, you'll be humbled then. You'll, Pharisees, I'll move you down seats. In fact, what we'll, what we'll see is, I'll move you out of the banquet. And there's another thing, it gets really practical. Jesus turns from those who were invited and he turns to the host And he expands on what he's saying practically. This ought to have repercussions in our lives. He asks the host, when you invite people, who do you invite? Now, I want you to understand, when he's saying this to the host, everyone else is sitting there. I mean, this is a question that everyone else would be asking themselves in their heads when they invite people, right, to their parties. And so he says to the host, when you invite people, what kind of people do you invite? Do you invite people who you know will invite you back, right? You, you, you eat their food, or they eat your food so that they'll invite you and you can eat their food? You invite them and they get social capital, right, and, and credit, if you will, and, and an expectation that they'll invite you to their party so that you can get social capital. Oh, I got invited to so-and-so's party, right? I got to sit close to the host. So Jesus, he throws them a curveball. Here's what he says. He says, instead, you ought to be inviting the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Essentially, you ought to be inviting people like this man with dropsy that you hypocritically brought to your party, that you, in a sham, invited. Those are the kind of people you ought to be inviting. 
Not your, not people who will pay you back. Jesus' point is not that you shouldn't invite your friends and your family to something, right? Like, Jesus' point here isn't, well, I'm going to have dinner, we're going to have a dinner and invite people over, but Jesus said, don't invite my friends and family, so sorry, you guys can't come. Like, that's not Jesus' point here. His point is, our invitation shouldn't have anything to do with what the people we invite can give to us. I want you to understand this. Jesus' invitation of you to his kingdom banquet has nothing to do with what you can do for him. You can't do anything for him. You can't. And that's not, that's not, that doesn't devalue you. Rather, it just states the fact of the matter and that Christ, by his invitation, raises your value. That Christ loves you when there's not really any reason to love you. That Christ invites you when there's not any reason to invite you. You you are not, you know, raising, moving him down the table, right? You're not bringing any benefit to him, rather because he loves you so much. He invites you. And so we who are invited, we who are part of his kingdom, ought to do the same thing, right? We ought to reflect that in our lives. If we refuse to welcome the socially awkward, well, that merely reveals our hearts, doesn't it? If you refuse to invite the people that can't pay you back in any way, whether that be monetarily or socially or relationally or, or whatever it is, if you refuse to invite those people, if you're, only in, in, if you're only generous to people who can give you something back, then you're not really being generous at all. That's actually just selfish ambition. The only person, person you're being generous to is yourself. Because you expect that that person will give you something. You're only doing it because of what they can give you, not to give them something. But if we have been given everything in Christ, then we can give out freely, and it doesn't matter because Christ has already exalted us. He will exalt us. He will pay us back. Listen, if, if you attach strings to your love, if you attach strings to your generosity, then all that you should expect to get is whatever you put on the other end of that string. That's what Matthew 6.1 tells us. Jesus says, no, you've received your reward already. You will not receive a reward from the Father in heaven. So if you want to attach strings to your love and to your generosity and to your service, by all means, Jesus says, go ahead. But all you're going to get is what's on the other end of that string. You're not going to get anything from the Father in heaven. The consequence of trusting God Trusting God and doing good, he says, is generous mercy later. He will do right by those who do right. Look at what it says. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Jesus' promise to us is that. He will repay us rightly. Do you believe that? Or do you need to be repaid today? You see, that's really the crux of the issue. It's, it's faith in delayed gratification, right? We ask ourselves, but what if I miss out on honor today? I need to make sure. But humility, humility depends on our trusting God's promise that he will exalt us later. Whether or not we're exalted in life right now. Humility depends on our trusting God's warning that He will humble the proud. We look and we say, well, that person is being honored, that person's being exalted, and here I am doing these things for Christ. Why am I not being exalted? Do we trust that God will humble the proud? Do we trust Him? It really does. Faith is the linchpin to this whole thing. 
So long as we fear that we might be missing out on something right now, some honor, some good, some, some whatever it is, that fear causes us to trust that today's things rather than God's things are what we really need. This lack of faith makes it impossible to truly just give or to just welcome someone who may even be, frankly, a hassle right now. Look, we invite people into our home. We invite people into our lives. And I'm just going to be honest, they break things. Since we planted Proclaim, I don't know how many things have been broken in my house. Toilets broken, handrails broken, doorknobs broken, glass things broken. I mean, I, kids' toys left outside by other kids, and then it rains, and they're ruined. I mean, my kids have, have oh, sorry, sorry, Ryder, sorry, Josie, that toy's ruined. Someone came over, and they left it outside, and it rained last night, and it's, and it's toast. Is it worth it? Do we believe that that kind of hospitality, that kind of generosity is worth it. Not everyone has the heart of a kingdom attender. Not even everyone who thinks they are looking forward to the kingdom is actually the kind of person who will attend the kingdom. One of those in the room, maybe because it's gotten a little bit awkward in the room, if you will, once Jesus started talking, turns and says, oh, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. No one's going to argue with this statement, right? We'll just kind of turn the, turn the conversation a little bit. And Jesus is like, oh, no, no, not so fast. <laughs> you thought it was awkward before. Let me make it even more awkward, right? But what the guy says is a true statement. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. That's a true statement. He is, he is right. Jesus doesn't have a problem with what he said there. He has a problem with the man's heart. He has a problem because they don't get what that actually means. And so Jesus takes it as an opportunity, and we're going to discuss two kinds of people who, who may think that they are in, who may think that they're going to be in that kingdom, they're going to taste that bread, but, but actually are at risk of not being in that kingdom. They are the rejectors and the quitters. So first, let's look at this parable that Jesus tells about these people who are rejecting the invitation, he, 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 Jesus tells a story about a man who invites people to this great banquet, he says. A great banquet. Who wouldn't want to come to this banquet? And then, and then as it comes time, uh, it would be very normal in that day and age, sort of like when we would send out like a save the date, and then we would come back with a, hey, are you really coming to this event? Uh, this sort of the thing that happens here. The invitation, invitation goes out, and then it comes time to actually come, and the, and the man sends out his servants to get the people, hey, hey, the, the banquet's going to start, come. And people begin to make excuses, right? I mean, look at some of these excuses. Oh, I can't come because I bought a field. I bought five oxen. I just got married. And the point is that these are supposed to uh, be very clearly ridiculous excuses. You could look at your field later. Like, you got married, bring your wife. I, like, what? I don't understand why this, how this keeps you from this banquet, Right? Jesus intends these to be clearly ridiculous excuses to not go. Why do they reject the invitation? Because they're distracted by present concerns. They make things that are comparatively trivial excuses for not coming. They make things that are trivial, uh, they make them into un unnecessary competition. To the invitation. You see, the man who made the statement about the eating bread in the kingdom, he, he assumes that he will be there. He assumes that he will be in that banquet, that he'll get to taste that bread, that he'll be eating it. And Jesus is saying to him, no, you are missing it. No, you're rejecting it. You don't even realize it, but you're rejecting it. Your preoccupation with current obligations are dist is distracting you. Friends, is your preoccupation with current obligations in your life, current concerns, distracting you from the kingdom? 
what will the master do? Well, he's not happy about it. The host is not happy that his invitation is being, his, his great invitation to a great banquet is, is being thrown to the side with these ridiculous excuses. And so he goes out and he begins inviting more people. This is what I want you to understand. God's kingdom will be filled with souls. One way or the other, he will fill it. This ain't a small party that he's throwing. And if we reject it, he will go and find people to come. And he's turning to these Pharisees and he's saying, look, you are rejecting my kingdom and I will go to the socially outcast. Whoever is just out in the streets in the lanes. Like that man with dropsy, I'll go to those kind of people and I'll invite them in. And then he goes a step further, doesn't he? What does it say? It says, I will go to those who are the highways and the hedges. I want you to understand that in context, the way that that phrase is used, he is referring to the Gentiles. He's saying to them, he's alluding, going, look, I'm going to invite people from other nations. I'm going to invite them in. My banquet will be filled, and if you won't receive the invitation, they will. Friends, if you won't receive Christ's invitation because you're preoccupied with things of this life today, he will bring other people in. If you think you're too good, you have got too many things going on, if you're too proud to to receive that invitation humbly, he will find humble people and he will exalt them. Because he's God and he's good and he will do it. And for us, if we reject that, Jesus' point is clear. What does he say? For I tell you, none of those men who were invited, none of those men who were invited, but but rejected it, will taste the banquet. They won't get a crumb. How many people today who call themselves Christians, maybe have gone to church for years, will never taste his banquet? How many people like this man assume Oh, that'll be great. Maybe even talk about, oh yeah, it'll be great to be with Jesus one day. Oh, it'll be great in heaven. Oh, it'll be whatever. Just like this man did, but we'll never taste that banquet. Many people assume they'll be welcomed in because they said some words or they prayed a prayer one day because they made it to church at least once a month because they didn't do anything that was too terribly bad. They're a pretty good person. But when that day comes, they'll say, Lord, Lord, and Jesus will reply, I never knew you. You were too busy, distracted by all the other things that you prioritized over me. You never actually received the invitation. Your faith wasn't in me. It was in all the idols of your life all the things, all the gods that you put before me. Listen, you can't be a distracted rejecter now and expect to be a humble attender later. It doesn't work that way. You need to ask yourself, you need to take stock, as these Pharisees ought to, am I distracted? Am I consumed with the cares of this world, my job, my possessions, my relationships, what people think about me? Do they distract me from the greatest things? Do I find myself unable to to find time to to read God's word or to pray or to gather with the church on Sunday morning to, to get a foretaste of what that great banquet will be with all believers for all times? If we refuse to taste it now because we have more pressing concerns, should we expect to be admitted later? Now you might say, Cody, what do you mean? Do you, are you saying that, that I earn my salvation by doing these things? No, I'm not saying that. I am saying that the things you're doing today reveal something about your salvation. They reveal something about whether you are faithful or not. We're called to look at the fruit in our lives and either be reassured that on that day we will eat that bread 
or to be warned that we're at risk of missing it. So friends, either today be reassured or be warned. But you can't do nothing with it like these guys did. But there's another group of people, one last that Jesus addresses. Kingdom quitters. You see, Jesus turns to the crowds that have been following him. It says, now great crowds accompanied him. These are the people, not the Pharisees. These are all of the people who have been following Jesus around, who have been listening to him preach, who said, I follow Jesus, right? Great crowds accompanied him, and he turns to them, and he gives them a series of illustrations. First, he gives them a couple of illustrations to Help them to identify what is the cost of following Christ. What is the cost of receiving this invitation? And he gives two very heavy illustrations here. First, he says, you got to hate your family. Now, he isn't saying to turn to your family, you know, go home today and say, hey, family, I just want you to know I hate you. Jesus told me to tell you that. He told me to hate you. And so I just want to obey Jesus, so I, I hate you. No, he's not saying that, of course not. He tells us other places to love everyone. He tells us to love our neighbor, right? He tells us to love our enemy even. What does this mean? Well, hating is being used here in a comparative sense, not just that Jesus' kingdom is more important than your family, but it's vastly more important. You see, family is important, It's important in Scripture. It's important by Christ's own words. But family isn't ultimate. Only Jesus is ultimate. And if family comes against Christ, we must be willing even to lose our family, even to lose our brother or our sister, our mother or our father, our son or our daughter for Christ. As hard as that is, and, and it is hard, and that's why Jesus uses this as, as, as the example, right? Because it is difficult, because it, we're talking about ultimate stakes here. Listen, as our culture becomes more and more opposed to Christianity and the truth of Christianity, this becomes more and more a reality for us Christians. It becomes more and more a reality that this may actually be a choice that you have to face. That someone who is dear to you may come in such opposition to the truth of Scripture that in order to uphold Scripture, you you know it will damage or ruin the relationship. They may reject you for affirming what Scripture affirms, and you must be willing to make that decision. That is the cost you must be willing to pay. Jesus says, if you are going to be in his kingdom. Listen, we'll stick with Christ, realizing that those who reject him, they set themselves up as his enemies. And if they are his enemies, they are our enemies. And we are called to love our enemies. But that doesn't make them not enemies. In church, we, to, we, we, don't, we don't really have a, very, a good category for loving our enemies, do we? We know how to hate our enemies. We know how to treat an enemy like an enemy. That comes pretty naturally to us. And we know how to love people. But what does it mean? Loving your enemy is different than loving your fellow brother and sister in Christ. Is different than loving your neighbor. We don't have a very good category for saying, no, I will love you, and also I will not capitulate the truth to appease you. Because listen, if you will let go of the truth to ensure that someone that you love continues to love you, you are no better than the person who will only invite those who can invite you back. You're only loving them in order for them to continue to give you love. It's not for their sake. 
If it was for their sake, you would speak the truth in love, holding firm to God's word, even if they reject you, because that's true love, because that's the truth. It's hard. But that's what the kingdom demands of us. The second thing is this, we gotta bear, you got to bear your cross. It will cost you something. Yes, even your own life. Jesus isn't, I think sometimes when we hear Jesus say you've got to take up your cross daily, we think, we think that he's saying, well, you have to be willing to bear your cross. He's not saying you have to be willing to bear your cross. He's saying you must bear the cross. He's not saying maybe, he's saying it, it is, Right? It will cost. I think nothing better illustrates this. This idea of coming into the room and sitting at the lower seat. This idea of taking up your cross uh, better than what Philippians 2 makes clear to us that, that Jesus came into this world taking the lowest seat. He came into this world uh, putting on human flesh to be a, a servant and what, uh, to bear the, the cross, to literally bear the cross and die on the cross. And what did the Father do, it says there? The Father then exalts him. He humbled himself and the Father exalted him to his right hand. And we're to do the same. Listen, the point is that the cost is putting Christ's kingdom over everything else, literally everything else. And you think, well, goodness, how could, how could Jesus ask that? How could he put his kingdom up against all of these things in my life? But he's not. What he's saying is your, the kingdom is above everything. And all these other things that you think are, you know, that the kingdom is coming in competition with, that's not the way it works. Those things are coming in competition with my kingdom. I'm not vying for something. Jesus is on the throne. He's not vying for anything. All the other things are competing with him. So we got to know the cost, but we ought to count the cost. And Jesus gives us a few illustrations here as well. He says, why, do you, why would you work on laying a foundation for a tower if you're not going to be able to finish the tower? And why would you pay the price for war if you don't know that you're going to win the war? If you assume you're going to lose, you go out and you try to make peace with the other army, right? We'd have been, he's basically saying you'd been better to never have started than to start and then have to back out. You'd have been better to never have started than to pay some of the price and not see it through to the end. Friends, count, counting the cost means you plan to see it through. The cost is putting Christ's kingdom above everything, not just one day, not today, not 10 years ago when you prayed a prayer uh, in front of the church or at a conference or at whatever it, whatever it was. It is putting the kingdom first for the rest of your life, day in, day out, until the day you die. It is persevering. It is enduring. It's finishing the race. The point Jesus is making to the Pharisees at the banquet who had not received the invitation is similar to the point he's making to these crowds who have started to follow him but are at risk of not seeing it through to the end. You seem to have received it, you say, but you must continue in faith. You RSVP'd, you planned to go, a week before the event, don't back out. Will you trust that life in Christ is better than what the world offers, that faithfulness in Him will always turn out better? Jesus comes to His point in verse 33. Therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Those who'd rather quit than give up all for Christ prove their lack of faith. 
They prove that they don't trust that one day God will exalt us if we humble ourselves today. They, don't, they prove that they don't trust that one day he will repay everyone at the, at the resurrection of the just. And he illustrates this with this very, very plain, very everyday example for them that's not really an everyday example for us of salt, right? Salt loses its saltiness, has no good purpose. It's not good for seasoning food. It's not even good for, for uh, soil or for fertilizer even. You just, you just throw it out wherever because it, it doesn't matter anymore. Kingdom quitters, those who are unwilling to prioritize Jesus above all else, those who are, will not endure faithfully, render themselves of no use to Christ's kingdom. That sounds really harsh, doesn't it? But that's the point that Jesus is making here. You've rendered yourself useless. In fact, you've, it's kind of a waste You all know someone who was follow, seemed to be following Christ. Maybe, you've, maybe you gained greatly from things that they taught you, things they showed you in Scripture, and then they just blew their life out. Stopped following Christ. Dove headlong into sin. And you're sitting there and you're going, what in the world am I supposed to do with that? And remember my pastor who baptized me not long after he baptized me ran off with his administrative assistant and i remember struggling for some time thinking well, what does that what does that even mean for me my he baptized me he, he, like i learned things like what does that to wrestle with that We do greater damage. We don't count the cost to build the tower. If we're not willing to endure faithfully, it had been better if we had just not ever started. Jesus finishes by saying, he who has ears, let him hear. If you think I'm pushing Jesus' words too far here, uh, listen, he says, he who has ears, let him hear. He said that same phrase he said back during the time when he was giving the parable of the soils. Do you remember that? The parable of the soils, the word goes out. There's, there's four different soils. Some bears fruit, but then some soil, it, it never takes root. Some soil, it gets choked out by the thorns. Some soil, it, it's too rocky and it, and, it, and it burns up before it can, can really grow. And, this, and the point there is the same point here. We have to hear and hold fast. Hearing the word, truly hearing it, truly having faith, faith means you hold fast. You persist in doing the word, not because your, your works earn you salvation, but because your faith produces something in your life. Not just at the point of entering. It's, your faith is not just the starting blocks, Right? of the race. It's, it's how you run the race. There's a kind of visible and current connection to God's kingdom that is not always necessarily a persisting connection or belief. Jesus is saying it's better if you had not been connected at all. In war, if you are on the wrong side, you may lose the war and you may die in the process. But if you sign up for one side and later switch, then that's treason and defection. And the punishment will be worse for you. It will. Christ is the winning side. In fact, he's already won the war and he will have a victory banquet. And you can be, you are invited. Will you receive the invitation? Though the invitation is given freely, don't think that you can treat it flippantly. You must be willing to pay the cost. You don't get to go to the victory banquet if you're not willing to step into the war. In the end, you'll realize that comparatively it was no cost at all. I'll give you one last illustration. I remember on my as my wedding day approached, 
99% of me, I don't know if you, maybe, maybe this is going to get me in trouble, I don't know. Maybe you, everyone has experienced this. I'm not, I'm not really sure, so we'll see how this goes. 99% of me was overjoyed and overwhelmed with excitement to be married to my wife. The woman that I loved. But there was this little voice every once in a while that would come up, back of my head, that would say, man, this is a big commitment. This is the rest of your life. You're 21 years old. You're going to commit the rest of your life to one person? That's a big commitment. How many, how many people have you not even ever met, Cody? You're going to commit yourself to this one person for the rest of your life? What if this is not the right decision? What if this doesn't go well? Now let's imagine I foolishly had listened to that little voice. Let's imagine if I let that little voice keep me from marrying my wife. It would have been a terrible decision, right? It would have been a terrible decision to not get married to Amanda. But let's say now, today, that same voice came back. And let's say I listened to that voice today. How much more terrible would it be? Exceedingly worse. You'd say to me, Cody, you knew what the commitment was when you got married. You knew what the commitment was. You knew what it entailed. Indeed, unfaithfulness now, after covenanting in marriage with my wife, would have worse consequences to me. It would have worse consequences to her. It would have worse consequences to many others. I would ruin what I have now, and I would spoil anything in the future. I would. There's nothing on earth I... There's nothing on earth I would exchange. For that moment on my deathbed, as I'm dying and I think to myself, I was faithful to my wife till the end. There's nothing on earth that I'll exchange for that. There's nothing on earth that's worth it. And I have to remind myself every day of that fact so that I can persist so that I can endure when all the other things in the world want to distract me. Friends, there is nothing on that day that will be worth exchanging to know I was faithful to Christ to the very end. To have the reassurement that comes with that, that you are faithful to Christ and Christ is faithful to you. There is nothing on earth that's worth exchanging for that Remind yourself every single day. It's worth it to be invited into that banquet. Christ is faithful to me. Christ is faithful to his bride. He's worth it. Let's pray.